Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to For the Long Run, the podcast exploring the why behind what keeps runners running long, strong, and motivated. I'm your host, Jonathan Levitt. I've been running for a few years now and have the privilege of meeting many incredible runners on my travels all across the country. This podcast is intended to share those amazing conversations. This week's podcast is sponsored by Synchronet, powered by Wigwam. Synchronet uses breakthrough technology, creating a truly fitted sock that doesn't slip and it enhances the performance of a running shoe. They're tight on the arch and heel, which makes it feel snug. Go to Synchronit.com, S-Y-N-C-H-R-O-K-N-I-T.com, and enter in the code LONGRUN25 to receive 25% off. I'll be wearing them this spring, and you should too. Enjoy. And welcome back. I'm here today with Jacob Husey. Uh, Jacob, thanks for joining in today. Thank you, Jonathan. Pleasure to be here with you. For sure. So we are uh, we are recording on a new platform today. Um, I normally use uh, in-person interviews, but um, in today's uh, fun environment, I've migrated over to Zoom and now I'm on to Zencaster after uh, doing an inter- interview with you on Zencaster. So thanks for uh, thanks for showing me the ropes here. Yeah, I'm still learning as I go as well. Um, it, it's not the first platform that I tried, but it, it seems to be uh, provide better quality than at least some of the previous <laughs> efforts that I made um, to do remote interviews. So. For sure. So so if you're tuning in uh, and if you've listened to a couple of the episodes that I've released in the last few weeks or last week or two, um, thank you for the, the, uh, the slack on... Um, on the quality or the feedback on the quality. Uh, I'm doing my best. Uh, I wish that the sound quality was not an issue, but uh, thanks for bearing with me as I, as I figure this out along the way. So um, now that that's taken care of, uh, who is, who is Jacob? Uh, let's, let's kick it off from there. Oh, well, um, so I, I, I guess I wear a lot of different hats. Um, I think the, the role or responsibilities that I, that I think of the most when I think of who I am is, is that of father. Um, I am a father to six children, um, in a blended family. So, um, um, I have two stepdaughters, um, two biological children from a previous marriage. And and then, uh, my wife, Amy and I have two children between or together. Um, so, uh, it's, a <laughs> it's a, it's a blended and, and messy and, uh, muddy life, uh, that we lead, but, um, it's, uh, it occupies most of my thoughts and, <laughs> and dreams and aspirations. <laughs> so it gets me up in the morning. Um, it's what I, uh, it, it really is the, the one 
goal that I had in life um, was to be a dad. And um, it's also probably <laughs> the one thing I've failed at most at in life. Um, but it's uh, it's also by far the most rewarding um, and fulfilling um, and heartbreaking <laughs> uh, thing I've ever done. Um, let's see. I, uh, I'm on this podcast probably because I run and I happen to uh, also coach and race direct and, and somehow I've <laughs> uh, the stars have aligned and, and enabled me to um, essentially make a living as a, as a coach and a race director and, and as a runner. And, um, I also now have a podcast uh, called the art and science of running podcast. Um, I, I really enjoy reading and writing. <laughs> um, I was a, a teacher and also kind of an academic um, for a while. I have a, background in a lot of different things but the last thing i was in school for was anthropology um, because it was kind of the catch-all for <laughs> everything so i guess i could call myself an anthropologist as well um but i yeah i'm just i'm just an interested uh person and i'm just i i have a lot of interests and a lot of passions but cool so um, you had me on your podcast, The Art and Science of Running, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we talked a lot about running and performance and the journey and the process. Um, and that's that's pretty similar to the to the exploration we do here on For the Long Run. Um, but you have sort of a topical focus um, that I want to get into eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, you share, you had shared some ideas, um, about, you know, how we can, how we can steer this conversation, but I want to, I want to keep it a little bit, um, a little evergreen, at least to start. And, and I want to know why, why did you start running? What, what motivated you to, to get out the door the first time? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, I grew up in the the southwestern United States and, um, in a small, I, I was actually born on a farm, um, and, and always lived in small homes with, with lots of kids. Um, there's six kids in my family and, um, there wasn't a lot of money. And so kind of the most natural thing to do was to be outside. And, um, I, I don't remember much time inside our home. <laughs> like <laughs> we were just outside um, our entire lives, and um, it really up until like until after dark. That was, and we were usually upset that we had to come home, and it was kind of just a standing rule, a standing rule that uh, we usually had to hose off in the backyard <laughs> and take all our clothes off before we could come inside because we usually came home just like covered in mud and dirt and grime and probably manure and other things. And, uh, so I, in, in a lot of ways, um, I lived an enchanted, um, childhood, uh, uh, in that I just played hard a lot. And then as I got older, I learned to work hard a lot and, uh, and so competitive running was kind of the intersection of those two things that I was taught from the time I was born. Just kind of you're, you're responsible for yourself. You need to be accountable for your own actions. 
and y- you also you know need to spend as much time as possible outside so uh, i started competitive running i guess in seventh grade technically and that was not because of something that i'm terribly proud of but i i got kicked off the tennis team um, <laughs> because i it was right after basketball season and i i wanted to be a baller but i was you know like 411 and had a size 30 <laughs> uh foot so it was really awkward um i'd trip over my own feet running down the court um but i hadn't quite like grown into my feet yet so uh anyway i i I had little man syndrome and I talked a lot of trash. And so I, I thought you could do that in tennis. Cause you know, I liked Andre Agassi and some of the other guys that were a bit more vocal and rebels on the tennis court. So I tried to do that and I got kicked off two years in a row actually from tennis for talking too much trash. And, um, so I kind of got forced <laughs> to run track. Um, and then in eighth grade, I, I ran cross country to get in shape for basketball and because it was co-ed and, my friend was doing it his cousin who was also a friend but was also pretty was doing it so i i kind of started for i would say the wrong reasons it wasn't because i had an interest in running per se but um that's how and why i got started but um i wasn't good it took uh took an entire season to finish a cross-country race uh, like a one and a half mile cross-country race without stopping and walking and that was training every day to be able to do that. And uh, I think part of it was just not knowing how to pace myself and just, I was competitive in, in terms of like, in my own mind, I had high standards for myself. So I just wanted to stick my nose in and throw down and I wasn't capable of doing that. So, uh, and, and like I said, I was, I was young for my grade. I was small. I was a late bloomer. So it, it took probably two or three years now, I guess, if you think about it, um, for me to like, come into my own and for my body to actually absorb the training I was doing and to figure things out mentally and physically and for my body to start catching up with the size of my feet. And, um, so it probably wasn't until like the end of ninth grade. And this was like basically two and a half years of continuous running that I, <laughs> that things started to click and I started to like actually see myself as a runner and want to be a runner. So, yeah. That's awesome. Now, fast forward to today. Um, you're race directing, you're coaching, uh, and, and all sorts of, um, all sorts of things. So how did you get into, into race directing and coaching? Um, let's see. I started coaching, I guess formally I started coaching. Um, I, I took a stint off from running for, um, Mm -hmm for two years to do kind of a humanitarian, uh, some humanitarian work in, in Latin America. And, um, when I returned to school, the, the university that I had been attending and that I had run for the, for the previous two seasons, they had, um, eliminated their athletic program. And so I didn't have a team to come back to, and I didn't have a scholarship, but my coach was still there. He was still an employee at the um, school and, and, and they were kind of creating this, um, a pretty big intramural program, I guess. And so he, he asked me if I wanted to be a coach and kind of the track meet director for the track program. And so there were, I don't know, I would say probably a couple, 
at least a hundred or more students that were participating in, in track, but on different teams, so to speak. Um, and so I had to, I didn't have to, I, I, <laughs> I was able to pay for my school in part by, by being the a track meet director and, and as and the coach. Um, uh, so I did that just for my first semester after returning. And then I transferred to another school um, in Hawaii uh, that had an athletic program. One of my former teammates had transferred there and, and was running on the cross country team there. Um, they weren't very good. So I was able to get a scholarship after, after having not run for two consecutive <laughs> years. Uh, and, and that gave me a chance to kind of like fall back in love with running and like get back in shape slowly without a ton of pressure. Um, and I got to live in Hawaii for free. So that was cool. Um, but what was also fun was that the, the local high school, this was on the North shore of Oahu. Um, the local high school is called Kahuku high school. They, uh, they needed some help with the distance program in track. And, um, we didn't have a track team at the university. And so I only ran, I would, I only competed in the fall. And so I had the spring open to like dedicate to, coaching the team and the school was about three miles down the road. So I, I, you know, rush out of my last class of the day, sprint, basically do a tempo run on the, on the way to practice, then run with the kids and then run home, cool down on the way home. And, and one, I fell in love with that process. I fell in love with the kids. I fell in love with the community. And this was a, um, it's a pretty local community. Lots of, um, lots of people that didn't look like me basically. Um, and, uh, in fact, the high school is one of the top producers of, um, NFL players in the country. So they very much didn't look like me. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, and they're known to kind of be, uh, not just that community, but just, uh, it's not an easy thing to, <laughs> to be a Howley in, in Hawaii. Um, in some cases. And, uh, instead of being treated that way, um, the community embraced me and, um, and it was, it was a beautiful thing. I poured my heart and soul into those kids and, and those kids and those parents, um, they, they called me Kama Aina. They said I was one, one with the land and one with them. And, um, it was a, it was a beautiful thing. And I, I wanted, I, I never imagined doing that. I was, had lots of different, uh, aspirations that had nothing to do with running and, uh, it's kind of on the fast track to, <laughs> to doing something professional and corporate and, uh, both my time in Latin America and my time in Polynesia just turned that all on its head. And I wanted to be a part of a community and I wanted to, um, I wanted to give back. I, I I wanted to stop focusing so much on my own advancements and wanted to feel like I was doing something meaningful with my life. So. Cool. Let's talk about community. What's your what's your take or what is your community your local community like? Uh now I'm gonna sound like a total hypocrite. Um <laughs> I um I'm not terribly involved with my current local community um i live well, in, let's let's talk about the running community in general then yeah no well i i think it i i'd like i think it this dovetails but i will get into the running community so i i actually live in a in a place where there is a, a strong running and outdoor community i live in uh, canmore alberta which is between calgary and banff it's in the rockies um it's beautiful 
Um, there are, there are run groups that get together and do speed workouts and get together and do kind of easy social runs. Those happen in the evenings, which is usually during dinner time and story time <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, bath time. And, um, and so, uh, I don't participate in those things. And I, I, it's very rare that I run with anyone other than my dog occasionally, or, you know, occasionally if someone comes into town. I may be able to break free and, and go for a run. Um, but I, uh, it actually kind of creates anxiety for me with so many other moving parts for me to like s- create too many plans <laughs> because I know that, uh, with so many kids and so many other people's schedules that I'm responsible for. Um, I, I try really hard not to overcommit um, because I hate, bailing and having to just like with this interview, having to change it because of something. Uh, so, um, but part of that, I guess I could go back to, um, I don't know how to not be all in like, that's, that's my, my blessing and my curse, probably Mm -hmm. job interview on the office, but, um, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all in with everything that I do. And, uh, and I, I coached for about a decade and I, I, like I said, I poured my heart and soul into those kids and the, that community and, um, in Hawaii and then back in Oregon at my alma mater. And, um, I actually had to step back because, um, it was getting to the point where one, because people knew that I was all in, there was n- n- no end to the asks <laughs> mm-hmm. and, um, or the expectations of what I would do. Um, but then I had my own kids and I eventually I was, I was missing my own kids activities to be at other people's kids activities. And that just wasn't working. And, uh, and so I had to, I had to step back and say, okay, I can't do this anymore. I can't, um, I actually came to the realization at the, at the national cross country junior Olympic championships down in San Antonio. I was there with, again, a bunch of people's kids it was paid for by Nike. It was fun to be there. It was fun to see, my kids place well and meet some famous athletes and then be treated like Kings when we returned. But, uh, I missed my son's basketball game and that like, just, it was just too much. It was, it was already out of season. It was two months after the season and I was, I was still coaching other people's kids and I wasn't there at my own kids, uh, game. And so I, I just had to, it wasn't something that my now ex-wife asked me to do. It was just something I didn't feel right about. And so I stepped back and, um, and so I, that's, that's actually something I have to try really hard, uh, with, um, with my own running and with my own community involvement is that I, I know that if I commit to something, I can't, I can't bail. <laughs> that's just ingrained in me. And so I, I try not to commit to things that I, um, that I can't put my heart and soul into. So, um, I race less and I, and I put on some races and those are my, um, those take a lot of energy and I do put my heart and soul into those, but I, I try really hard to schedule those activities, whether they be races that I'm running or races that I'm directing at times where I do have greater flexibility or I, I know that I, I can put more time into those, um, events. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I gave a lot to the running community <laughs> for a long time and I still try to do that. Um, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm not as active, um, as far as like a social member apart from social media. Um, 
from day to day. Uh, well, cool. But but you are fairly involved from the management standpoint. So let's talk about Five Peaks. Let's talk about your your coaching mm-hmm. um, and and sort of the state of affairs of where where that's all at today. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Five Peaks is, uh, it's called Five Peaks Trail Running. Um, that's a nationwide trail running series uh, with about 30 events throughout across the nation, Nationwide in Canada, right? Nationwide in Canada, yeah, sorry. Um, it, there really isn't anything comparable to it in the U.S. Um, there, there are there are series, there are um, race directing companies, um, but they seem more regional. Um, North Face stuff that was in existence. Um, it, this is this is different, like uh, both in time in terms of scale and size. Like most of the events are at least five hundred participants, and some of them are closer to a thousand. Um, it's rare that you can get a permit in the U.S. for more than 200 people at a lot of for a lot of trail events and stuff like that. Um, or 400 is considered really big, you know. So um, uh, it's it's different, um, but that's that's mainly Amy's gig. So my wife Amy is the uh, principal owner and operator and national race director of, of Five Peaks Trail Running. So she. she she was doing that before we met. Um, and so there are four, five regions, I'm sorry, across the country. And, um, in two in Alberta, one in British Columbia, one in Ontario, and one in Quebec. Um, and, and in each of those regions, there are between three and six events, um, either that are part of a series. And most people would consider them, hmm, they're not ultras. Most of them aren't ultras. And there are also a couple other standalone events. So, um, that's, that's mostly Amy's thing. Um, I, um, by association, (laughs) I try and help out. Um, so I've, I've managed the social media for a bit. Um, I'm no longer doing that just because I was already busy enough with some of the other things. Um, but you know, I deal with storage or we run ideas off of one another. So that's, that's mostly hers. Um, she and I do direct an event apart from Five Peaks. Um, that's actually in partnership with Trans Rockies, and that's called the Trans Selkirks Run, and that's in a place called Revelstoke, British Columbia, and that's a three or five day stage race that we put on um, together with uh, the the support and staff of or in partnership with trans Rockies events. Um, and, and that's in part because we, she and I met at the trans Rockies run in Colorado in 2015. And, uh, and we just felt like it'd be cool to do something like that, but in Canada eh, with maybe a bit more single track and access to kind of the rugged, um, back um, but also maybe a little more family friendly and resort based. So that's what the trans Selkirks run is. And we've done that. Uh, I think this will be our third or fourth year um, in, uh, in Revelstoke putting that on. So cool. How has, um, so I know one of the things you, you had mentioned was talking about canceling and postponing events and why refunds and transfers work or don't work and, and how it impacts the race organization. I think that there are a lot of races that are canceling outright. Some are 
offering defer, uh, deferred entry to later in the year or next year or translating to virtual races. What is, what is it that runners need to know that they probably don't know based on what's going on behind the scenes that, that we should all be aware about uh, with the races that we love and, and want to support? Um, I mean, it, it really does vary from race to race and uh, whether it is kind of a standalone event or if it's a, um, you know, if it's something like a big city marathon or if it's a um, kind of a, a small business operation or if it's nonprofit or whatever, chances are there's at least one person, if not a team of people where that's their full-time job or a big part of <laughs> what they do. Like Amy's full-time job is, is to be the national race director. The, my role with uh, trans Selkirk's run um, occupies significant time throughout the entire year. And so some people, um, they get paid a salary. Some people, they get paid, in one lump sum after the race or it depends on how, how arranged and stuff like that. If, if it's their job. Um, I know that, you know, a few years ago, the New York city marathon got canceled and people, and it was at the last minute and people were upset that they didn't get refunds. And and it was like the, the part that people failed to understand is that every single employee of the New York Roadrunners, (laughs) um, and every contracted, um, support staff, whether that included the police or, or whatever else, they had all already done their job or at the at minimum, the, the fees had already been paid for the services that uh, they had agreed to render. And so by the time you get to race day, there isn't any money left. I mean, it, most of the time, <laughs> most of the time you're scraping the bottom of the barrel to, to like, you know, have something to start the next event the next year's events with or something like that or or um and that's not just in my case like i i i think there's a perception that race directors are like rolling in it and that's <laughs> the the case um i actually started after my my gig with uh um at the the university where i was just the intramural track meet director um during the last recession <laughs> that we were in, um, I was a high school coach and, but I was also responsible for the two middle school feeder programs in the, in the town that I was in, in rural Oregon. And, um, uh, and I, I became responsible in part because they just cut the programs. Um, they cut funding for everything, all, any sort of anything that wasn't <laughs> essential, like football got cut. And so, um, so I was, I started a, um, it started with one event and then it became like a series of like five or six events each year in large part, just to fund the middle school and high school programs. Not, not so that I could pay myself. Like I usually (laughs) made sure that, um, and I didn't, I didn't take a cent from any of the races that we put on, but it was, it was all nonprofit to just keep the, the middle school programs afloat to, to pay for buses, to, to help. This was in a, a place where probably 60, if not more percent of the athletes on my team lived below the poverty line. Um, most of them couldn't afford shoes or, or at least as many shoes as they needed. Um, couldn't afford to go to camps. We often couldn't afford to go to invitationals. Um, and so that was how we, we went from having a shoestring budget to having, (laughs) having nothing to trying to, you know, both get community involvement and support, but also teach the kids to give back and, and, to understand 
<laughs> what um, like my my cross country team and and a few of the parents were the people putting on the races. You know, we they were out there on the course and stuff like that. And so um, I did that um, in part to raise money. And, and I, I think that that's why most people start and get into the uh, road or into, into the race directing business. It's it's because they want to do something for their community or or they want to give back to the sport. They, um, whether it's that they, they want an excuse to ha- get all their friends to come back together, <laughs> like to have a reunion. Um, that's right. what trail races often end up being like ultras. Uh, that's what trans Selkirks is. Like some of my, some of my best friends from throughout my life come up and help me put that race on. Cause it is, I mean, it's, it's a ton of work. Um, and it's exhausting, but it's also really fun to like <laughs> fall asleep every night, totally exhausted and then wake up and, and work really hard all day in a beautiful place and get to do that with, people that you love. So, um, so I think that's the real motive behind most people putting on races and, and, and wanting to give, give a really unique experience to runners or, or somehow do something special for athletes. I, I, I honestly think there are very few people who have a profit motive in mind when they decide to put on. <laughs> and, uh, but then the hard part is, um, if, if you have done it right, and if you've tried to, um, you've tried to put everything back into the race and give it back to the racers, like I said, you likely don't have much left, especially when at the last minute you have to make a call to cancel a race. And, um, in the case of the trans Elkers run, there hasn't been a year that we've done it when we haven't like up until the last night before the event, or even before a certain stage, we've, we've been in meetings like at past midnight trying to decide, are we going to run this stage tomorrow there were grizzlies on the trail yesterday to figure out whether we can go there tomorrow or not or 200 trees just blew down in a windstorm the day before the race was supposed to start and we we that's the only route we have permitted but we don't have enough chainsaws and enough people to remove all those trees or or there's a a wildfire and there's smoke and (laughs) i mean there's always something going on um not just with that event but with almost every event you know even if there's a heavy rain and you want to be a good steward of the trails and you don't want to create trail braiding and erosion but there may not be another open date to to secure that venue or any venue they're already booked usually years and like a year in advance um and uh and so I, i i just don't think many people understand how much work goes into putting the events on how much love goes into them, how much stress <laughs> goes into them. Um, and, uh, and, and how hard it is to, to make that call. Like most, most race directors want the racers to be safe and that's their number one priority. And yet at the same time, they, they, they will do anything they possibly can to make sure that you have that experience that you've, that you've been preparing for. And so it's a really tough call to, to cancel, but it's also, sometimes it is impossible to postpone or to pick another date. Um, I mean, already Boston and London have scheduled things in the fall. And so, so that calendar is already getting really saturated for people. Um, a lot of race directors try and respect one another as well. So like, if we know that there are other races, races going on, we usually try and not just to not oversaturate the calendar, but, but out of respect for, competing race organizations and race directors we we try to say okay you've you want this weekend we're gonna can we have next weekend or something like that or try and space them out even more if there's something like this like mass cancellations going on there isn't the ability to do that and then 
basically everyone loses the runners lose right. the race directors lose. Um, and so my suggestion, and this isn't, I, I'm, this isn't out of selfishness. I don't think it, it, because this is for all race directors and all racers. If, if your race has been canceled and if, or postponed, or if there's an option to do something virtually or to, to donate your entry, uh, my recommendation would be to do that and to try not to, I, I, we're all, I, I mean, I, <laughs> anyone who had any money in the stock market is suffering financially right now, uh, or, or is, is scrambling and trying to figure out what to make sense of. Um, that might be retirement, that might be extra savings, whatever that might be. Um, I think we're struggling in that respect. Um, it, we're all there's a lot of uncertainty and instability right now um but at the same time in most cases race director most most waivers already say that you know like if the race gets canceled if you get injured if anything else like sorry like you don't get a refund almost almost every waiver i've ever seen says that and so for people to expect that even though they've signed a contract saying they don't that they are okay with that is, is disheartening. And, and, and then when race directors again, take on the additional work to try and find an alternative date or alternative venue or another means of doing it. Um, when people don't, um, at least acknowledge that there are efforts being made to, for the race director to do, to, to go above and beyond to, to fulfill right. part of the contract because they care about their event and they care about the runners. Um, it's, it's disheartening. Like it, it, it actually makes you <laughs> want to disassociate from fellow runners. Um, when you see s- most of it is really positive, but then it, all it takes is man, one email can just, <laughs> it, it's, it, it can really, it can ruin your day. And, and then when you get them in mass, it's just like, wow, why am I even doing this? You know, it's, it, it can be really, really challenging. So, so that's depressing. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's, I think it's good. I mean, like there's a lot of people don't know what to expect and they think that, you know, all the costs happen on race day and that's it. Um, but there's so much that's going on behind the scenes that makes it impossible. I'm just thinking of like, like think of the Olympics and think of all the, the craziness going into rescheduling that. Um, so, so let's talk. So you also mentioned that you're a teacher or you've, you've been a teacher and, um, you work from home and you have some experience with homeschooling. Um, what advice do you have for people at a time like this that are maybe navigating working from home and childcare at the same time? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I was a, a teacher of, of different levels um, and grades and subjects uh, for about a decade. And that was kind of the decade when I was also uh, a coach, but like an in-person coach of, of either high school or college athletes. And, um, and that was mostly the, the age groups that I taught. Um, I did have to do some um, kindergarten through sixth grade uh practicum. And it was pretty clear that when I went from, uh, teaching college courses to being, um, in the elementary levels about the only thing I was good at was recess. And it was fun (laughs) to dunk on the kids. But other than that, 
that was about all I could perpetually, do. perpetually. I I was a camp counselor for third and fourth graders, and I've been five six since probably I don't know. Uh, I was. 16 years 17 years old so yeah dunking on kids was that's my favorite <laughs> it, it's fun and they think it's so cool it's like it, yeah right <laughs> the entire class and you're like watch i'm gonna dribble between my legs and i'm gonna keep the ball away from you and then i'm gonna dunk it on all of you and it, it <laughs> not mostly because it's fun like my own kids so, like that's their favorite so key thing, so key key takeaway is to if you're following Ben Bruce, you know that he's got a pop a shot in his basement. It it you couldn't dunk on those, but you can only do it once. Yeah, <laughs> um, true story. So so maybe so so maybe your takeaway here is to get one of those uh, those rubber or plastic um, you know five foot hoops and just start dunking on your on your six year olds. Is that is oh, that the is that the takeaway here? One of the takeaways. Any time <laughs> you can include. Um, basketball or or any sort of sport um in the house like kids love that and so one of my favorite things like we're we're stuck inside for a lot of the days um and especially now we we usually have childcare. right now amy and i are splitting the day up four hours at a time um so that we can each at least have some dedicated time to to work and and if we can to get in a run or something like that um but yeah, we definitely have the little tyke um, basketball hoops and the the balls. But I mean, my youngest kids they like the lacrosse balls that I roll my feet out on, and and then you know my middle aged kids like the kettlebells, and you know the kids think it's amazing, fun to roll around on foam rollers and stuff like that. So so some of the stuff that we have as runners can be toys for our kids, and they they seem to think they're pretty fun. Um, but yeah, I, I like I said, I was I had pretty eclectic um, interests while studying. And so I, I studied a lot of different subjects and therefore was able to teach a lot of different subjects. I was never planning on being a teacher. Um, I thought I'd be a lawyer or a physical therapist. <laughs> um, and so I took a lot of those types of courses that would allow me to do that um, while I was falling in love with coaching. Um, and so when I returned to my alma mater in Oregon, uh, they kind of just asked me to teach everything that I could pass a test to teach, which was kind of everything. And so, uh, or I needed credits to be able to do it too, but I also, um, had like a hundred more credits than I was supposed to have when I finished my undergraduate stuff. So, uh, I had a lot of, I, I was in school for a while, um, because I was able to do that with deferments and red shirts and stuff like that. So I was getting paid to go to school. So I just took advantage of it. Um, so as far as, um, the, the things that I learned as a, as a high school and as a middle school teacher, and also, um, with as many kids as we have, um, one of the biggest things that kids struggle with and that teachers struggle with and that the standardized tests say they need to uh, do better at is, is nonfiction reading. And so during this time, I think it's a good thing for kids to be bored and to not have, every single second scheduled, even though that's kind of what they're used to with, especially elementary school kids, um, at school. Uh, if I think back to my own upbringing, um, the books that have the, have had the most profound impact on my life were books that I read at home that were not required reading from school, but they were books that I read because I was interested in a, in a subject. So when I was a little kid, used to check out books about reptiles because I lived in the Southwest and I was finding different 
reptiles and I wanted to know what they were. I wanted to know what they ate. I wanted to know if I could, if they were poisonous. I wanted to know if I could bring them home with me and um, make them pets or, or if I should avoid them. Um, and then as I started getting into sports, I read everything I possibly could about basketball. I read everything I possibly could about um, running. I um, I subscribed to running magazines and bought a lot of books. And most of that was with my own money that I would earn, you know, as a paper boy or mowing lawns or things like that, or that I check out at the library. Um, and I, I don't see very many kids doing that kind of stuff anymore. And I didn't see that when I was a teacher. And so one of the things that I encouraged kids to do was just, and, and parents of kids was to make sure that there were always books around and that, and that kids read what they were interested in. And if, and if it's something they're interested in, they will read and it, it won't feel like work. It will, it will be pleasure. Um, and that can be fantasy or that can be sci-fi or that can be comic books. I mean, I have a 13 year old son who loves comics and graphic novels, but um, I mean, a lot of it's pretty advanced stuff that he likes to read about and, and he'll devour those things. And, and I have a rule in our house that if a kid asks for a book, I will buy them the book or we will at least go to the library to get the book. But if right now, if we need to order stuff from Amazon, it's not like I have unlimited funds. Uh, that's still worth it to me. Like I, um, I think books are one of the best investments that you can possibly make. And so, um, have a lot of books around and, and let your kids read at their leisure and, and, and make sure that they don't have enough to distract them from reading uh, around as well. So, um, turn off the devices, get rid of devices, <laughs> remove them from certain rooms. Um, and then at the same time, because most of our kids do know how to use the devices. I would recommend that uh, they use them and not just ask Siri, uh, you know, or Alexa or whatever. And I apologize to those who work for those companies and stuff like that. <laughs> but, uh, but teach them how to do a, a real search and teach them how to find out information. So whether that's a recipe um, and trying to figure out what, <laughs> what food items we have in the house um, that we can make something with, uh, and avoid going to the store, um, or, and also learning what we might be able to use as a replacement if we don't have certain things. And so there, there are just lessons that can be learned, like practical lessons that will encourage nonfiction reading and problem solving and, um, and engineering. And, and that was and project-based learning and things like that. And so I, um, I, I think a lot of parents are, are stressed out about, you know, I don't know how to do this. And, and my, my number one suggestion would be just have your kids read, discuss what they're reading. If you choose to listen to the news around the kids, I would say minimize that as much as possible. I would say minimize it even if you're not doing it around your kids, but just, you know, consume what you need to consume and then like cap it at, <laughs> at the daily recap of whatever the, the news is that day. Um, otherwise, I think we'll all get depressed. Um, but then discuss the news with the kids. And, and if you choose to watch things with your kids, make it a discussion or, or have them write about it. And, um, I, uh, I got, as a teacher, I got threatened almost annually that my job, I was going to work myself out of a job because too many of my students were passing the tests that were uh, allowing them to be removed from my, the program that I managed to, at the secondary level, um, in the district that I was at, <laughs> um, for second language learners and stuff like that. And the only thing I did was I approached literacy, like I approach running. It's like some running is good. More running is usually better. 
Some reading is good. More reading is usually better. Some writing is good. More writing is usually better. And I just taught my kids to run as much as they could and write as much as they could and read as much as they could. A lot of my athletes were second language learners. And so I had a library of over a hundred books about running and I used to reward them. And some of them could even, they could, they could earn a letter, a varsity letter through a combination of miles logged and or pages read about running. And, um, we had a really good team and we also had a lot of kids who were not expected to even graduate from high school, get college scholarships and, and college degrees because of that. And, um, and so my recommendation to parents, <laughs> it's a lot easier when they're not your own kids, but to, to parents with your kids at home is just, man, give your kids information and give them access to resources, but, but have discussions with them. Um, take some time to prepare meals together, take some time to discuss all sorts of ideas together as a family um, over dinner or while preparing meals or take your kids on walks and learn about what you see on your walks. If you, if you are able to leave the house and I, I don't know. For me, I'm, I'm like, I feel like I've already made better connections with my kids just in this short time. And even with my siblings and with other nieces and nephews who I don't usually have enough time to be in contact with. And um, so in some ways I feel more connected uh, because of the technologies that are available to us. And at the same time, I feel like I'm, I took one of my, my daughters driving the other day who just got her permit and I wasn't in a rush to get home. So we spent an hour in a, like a full on blizzard driving when normally we should probably like shut this thing down after 10 minutes. But it was like, why? (laughs) And we were listening to Justin Bieber's latest album, which, you know, it wasn't my request that that's what we listened to, but I was chill enough that I didn't, it didn't freak me out either that that's what we were doing was just like, what we've got nothing but time, you know? <laughs> like, so let's just yeah. enjoy it. And, and she learned a lot just in that one hour. Like she, it was fun to see her light up and her shoulders relax and, and her feel more confident after an hour of driving uh, because she'd never driven for that amount of time. And all we did was go in circles around the block. You know, it wasn't like we were doing anything treacherous, but it was snowing bad enough. that It was, it was like a different, different route each time we, each lap that we made of the, of the, up the block. So anyway, I think there's just a lot of opportunities. And so, um, don't overcomplicate it. Just kids need to learn how to read and write and problem solve and, and, and articulate their ideas. So cool model. That for them. Um, <laughs> in term, so in terms of working with your athletes, what's, what's been the, the North star, the, you know, guiding principle that you've been sharing with them? Well, <laughs> um, everyone is different. Uh, and so I, I, that's part of it is that, you know, you don't have to do what the other members of the team are doing. I would just say um, the the guiding principle would just be, you know, keep calm. Panicking isn't going to help anyone, um, but also be responsible. Do what you need to do to take care of yourself and your family, um, but also be mindful of how that will impact positively or negatively others, whether they be in the running community or, or just in the community at large. Um, but, but it has been, this has certainly been the most the busiest I've ever been um, because everyone's schedule has just totally changed, whether that be work schedule or training schedule or race schedule. And so there's just a lot more shuffling. And so one of the 
I, I'm, I'm encouraging people to run by feel and to, to do what they can with what they, <laughs> what they can do. But even that's changing from day to day, you know, the, the different shelter interpretations or renditions of what shelter in place means, uh, whether that actually means you can't leave your domicile or whether that means you just can't be with people outside of your, um, immediate family with whom you reside. Um, so it, it, it is, it is different, uh, in, including what their profession is. So uh, I work with the number of people that work in healthcare or travel or mm, different, different industries. And so their, their jobs and their risk is either greater or less depending on what the demands of their current work situation are. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, where can we find you on social or uh, the internet if we want to follow along with you or find out more about what you're doing and, uh, and how to get involved? Yeah. Um, peak run performance is, is where is like my website or the coaching website. Um, it's also where I, I try and share the most um, articles and content that I create um, in addition to the art and science of running um, podcast. Um, so that's art science run and .com or peakrunperformance.com. If people want to connect directly with me, uh, you can do so through Twitter or Instagram or Facebook at Jacob Pusey. Uh, that's P-U-Z-E-Y. Um, yeah, I... I'm usually online. Uh, that's what I, that's what I've been doing for the past five years or so is working from home online, um, as an online running coach and as a race director. Um, so I'm usually online in some form or fashion lately. My response time has probably been a bit delayed, <laughs> whether that be through my or, or through social media, um, just cause there's a lot going on and a lot of kids running around. So. Cool. Well, uh, Jacob, thanks so much for joining today and uh, hope to see you near Banff sometime sometime soon. Yeah. Love to have you out here. Uh, right cool. now the border's closed. So as soon as the border <laughs> um, come on up for a visit. And- okay. Maybe not soon, but eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is good timing. If you can, the, the first Grizzlies are already out. And so, um, <laughs> the, but they're not going to find any people to eat in the next little while, uh, hopefully. And so, you know, get, get past that first little itch where they're getting out of hibernation and once the border opens they will have found enough food that they won't be looking for people so yeah listen i will always socially distance myself from grizzly bears so (laughs) we'll leave it at that (laughs) practice right there yeah cool thanks thanks so much take care Bye. bye thanks again to synchronet for sponsoring this week's podcast Synchronet uses breakthrough technology, creating a truly fitted sock that doesn't slip in your shoe and enhances the performance of a running shoe. They're tight on the arch and heel, which makes it feel snug. As a reminder, you can use the code LONGRUN25 to receive 25% off your first order at Synchronet.com. That's S-Y-N-C-H-R-O-K-N-I-T.com. I'll be wearing them this spring, and you should too. That's it for today's episode. Like many long runs, it's sad when it has to end. I hope you join in next week on For the Long Run, and in the meantime, happy trails. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you shared it so that others can find it and enjoy it too.